This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by Harry's. For guys who want a great shave experience for a fraction of what you're paying now. And just in time for Father's Day, get $5 off the limited edition Father's Day set. You can enter at the code FOOL, F-O-O-L, when you check out. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool, and he's also the editor and advisor on Motley Fool's Ruley Retirement Newsletter. Hello, Allison. Great to see you and hear you again. Yes, as always. It's our very special June mailbag episode, and we even listed the help of foolish investor, Ron Gross. Hey, hey. To help (laughs) us tackle your investing-related questions. What's discounted cash flow? Where do repurchase shares go? What's the deal with guidance? All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. I didn't prepare any of those questions. I need to know in advance. Well, (laughs) we'll wing it. We're good. You're already screwing up the show, Ron. You know what? Get out. (laughs) We're good. We're done. We're done. Bye, everybody. (laughs) All that and more on this week's episode of Molly Fool Answers. Ron, you've been investing for a while now. Tell me how you got started. Oh, gosh. I've been in this business for about 25 years. Um, I always knew I wanted to be an investor, pretty much. From the womb, I sometimes say. <laughs> um, I studied finance undergrad. I studied finance in graduate school. And really, from the first job on, 25 years later, I've been chugging along. And I've got the gray hair to prove it. <laughs> did, it did it come from your family? I, from, what, from conversations we've had, your dad is more conservative than you are. My dad is much more conservative and has never really been a stock market guy. He's been a finance guy. He's a CPA by trade, chief financial officer um, type of guy um, for, for his career. Um, so definitely a lot of finance and accounting conversations around the table. Boy, that's some table. Is this how you rebelled? You're like, you know what, Dad? But, uh, Forget you. I'm going to go into individual stocks. And he's well, like, Ugh. you know, I, I learned a lot from him because accounting is absolutely the language of finance. You need to understand accounting before you can even move into finance. So that really was helpful. All those accounting classes when I would call him and say, I don't get it. Can you help? So that was definitely um, great. And and from there on, I, I went into the stock market. Cool. And how long have you been with The Fool? About eight years. Oh, okay, nice. Eight great years. And that's 56 years in real <laughs> in, people years. Why would it's you say true. that? Right before here, I was I was managing hedge funds. And when I got to The Fool, it is so different than traditional Wall Street. And I, I must say, so much better than traditional Wall Street. It was it was a welcome change, and I'm, I'm proud to have been here for, for eight years. I remember asking you at one point how you like working at The Fool, and you said, basically, if you're not enjoying this job, Something wrong you wouldn't, with you. You wouldn't enjoy any job. Yeah. <laughs> that, that is true. All right. Well, like we said, it's our big mailbag episode. So we're just going to start digging into some questions. Sound good? Please. Yeah. Great. Okay. Here we go. First question comes from Brandon. Brandon writes I have a small amount to invest. Is it better to buy fewer shares of a good company like Under Armour or many shares of a company like Clean Energy Fuels? Is that the that, ticker for that CL- is CLNE? Any? Yeah. So that, that, okay, any ads that it, uh, CL, C, Clean Energy Fuels, which is priced low with the potential for greater upside? Potential, true. So we hear this question <laughs> a lot, and I think it's important to understand that the number of shares you buy is actually irrelevant. What matters only is the amount of capital you commit to any investment. So if you buy 100 shares of a $10 stock, or only one share of a $1,000 stock, you're committing the same amount of capital, you have the same amount invested in that company, and that's all that matters. If both investments rise 10%, both investments are going to make the same amount of profits, $100 in this in this particular example. So the amount of shares doesn't really, you shouldn't really take that into account um, 
when you're thinking about investing. Now, one of the things he said in his question, which I think is really important, he talked about good companies, and I put that in quotes. And I say, I think, unless you're an investor um, investing in distressed companies or, or deep value companies, as, as I do, and my hedge funds um, actually did, you really want to focus on good quality companies. Don't go for low price stocks that you think maybe are high flyers just because they're low priced. Invest in good quality companies. Don't worry about the number of shares. Worry about the amount of capital you want to put into that investment, and you know, hold for the long term. All right. So it sounds like in this case, you would maybe go Under Armour over clean energy fuels, or maybe maybe not making. I'm not necessarily asking you to make a stock call here. Correct. But and also not having analyzed both companies as as much as I know Under Armour, I haven't analyzed the other one. But I would say Under Armour is certainly a quality company recommended highly by several um, analysts here at The Fool. And it's considerably cheaper these days, since it's down from like 46 to 36 over the past six weeks. It is. Cheaper is the eye in the beholder. You mean lower price. There you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next question comes to us from Barbara. Barbara wants to know, um, has a question, is it too basic, though? Um, she wants to understand what the discounted cash flow model is. Apparently, Bill Barker tried to explain it on Market Foolery, and he lo- he lost him. Oh, he lost Bill. her. Oh, Bill. Well, first of all, it is, it's so not, let's see. Let's, it, the it, gauntlet has been thrown. It is not only too basic. It is the most non-basic. It is the most complex question. I call DCF the mother of all valuation tools, and that's because it is the most complex and the hardest to understand, which is probably where where she got caught up with Bill. So. Let's start at the beginning. The DCF is based on the premise that the value of an asset, any asset, whether it's a piece of equipment or an entire company, is the present value of all of its future cash flows into forever. We like to call it perpetuity. So, what does that mean? If you want a candy store in the corner and you're going to own it until it's time for it to close, all that money at the end of each year that you can put in your pocket, that's what your business is worth. It's not worth less than that, it's not worth more than that. That's what it's worth. So, the big problem with DCF is figuring out how can cash flows be estimated into forever. It, it's by definition actually impossible. Yeah. But we try to do it anyway. We try to get as <laughs> we try to play we try God. to get as close as possible, <laughs> and we try to make certain assumptions. A company can grow earnings for. 10% for the next 10 years, and then 5% for the 10 years after that, and maybe then just 1% or 2% for there, thereafter until it goes out of business or, or gets acquired or whatever happens at the end. Then, as if that wasn't difficult enough, we then need to express all those future cash flows in today's dollars, the present value. And there's a lot of mathematical formulas that we use, um, and there's so many inputs that it's hard to get that right as well. But yet, we still try to do it. And when you have your final answer, you can then compare it to the stock price. And you can they say, okay, the value I get is higher than the current stock price, or perhaps lower than the current stock price. And you can then say, this stock is either overvalued or undervalued. But I think it's helpful to always think about that candy store. Pretend you own 100% of this company, and every year you're putting money in your pocket. Over a lifetime, you'll put a certain amount of money into your pocket. That's what a company's worth. That's what any asset is worth. Yeah, but it's not like so cut and dry. Like anyone's <laughs> valuation of a company is really their best guess. Absolutely. And that, so, and that's why um, ask ask ten analysts to do C, a DCF on a company, and you'll get ten different answers. Yeah. Now, the more thoughtful about it that you are, not just plugging numbers into an Excel spreadsheet, actually doing the research about growth rates and 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 what you think will happen in the future, perhaps you can get in the ballpark of the other analysts that were doing the same work, as long as you're all diligent in. 
the same manner. But yes, it is it is by definition imprecise, but it is still a tool that can be useful to say if these things were to happen, if I'm getting it right, then I think the stock would be worth X. It's not the end of the world though if I n- never do a discounted cash flow, right? <laughs> I, I'm asking permission to just like for, I love Costco. It's terrible Allison, if you go don't. ahead and buy. Yeah, it's yeah. bad if you I do actually it, would, would recommend against the average investor doing it because it is so difficult to get it right. There are so many pitfalls. I could literally teach a whole semester of college or graduate school on, on DCF and how to do it and, and how to avoid the pitfalls. So there are some calculators out there on the internet that, that you can use and punch in some assumptions and it'll crunch the numbers for you if you kind of want to do a quick and dirty get kind of get a sense of it. But no, I don't think the average investor should fire up the Excel spreadsheet every time they're looking at a company and, and start punching <laughs> in numbers uh, into oh, perpetuity. Thank God, so you're, 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 you are off Yay. the hook. <laughs> Great. Do you ever do it the other way around? Like look at the price and say like, okay, based on the way it's priced. The stock market is saying these are its future cash flows, and I agree with that or I disagree with that. Absolutely. We reverse engineer the DCF to say the company needs to grow earnings 20% over the next 20 years for the current stock price to be justified. And as you said, do I agree that that is possible or not? Got it. All right, next question. Joe wants to know what metrics do you use to screen for potential stocks to buy? Do these metrics change when you're seeking a value stock, a dividend growth stock, a Big growth stock. Uh, you know, are you looking at net profit margins, uh, return on equity, debt equity? I feel like this could actually also be another graduate level course in this question. <laughs> it could be. Well, well, you know, Joe, I have to say that definitely metrics for screens can be different based on the type of investment you're looking for, but some of them can kind of have certain things in pro- uh, in common. For example, you probably want a strong balance sheet no matter what investment you're looking at, unless, again, you're focusing on distressed investments. But let's ignore that. You probably want a company that has strong return on equity ratios, no matter what you're looking for. But then, when you start to drill down into different types of investments, like value, for example, I would maybe focus on a book value ratio or a cash flow ratio for value. For growth, hey, it's growth, so you want to look at revenue and earnings growth. Dividends, you would definitely look at a dividend yield. You would look at the cash on the balance sheet, the cash flow generation, the amount of capital expenditures the company says it has to spend over the next year or two so they have enough money to pay that dividend. And these are all things you can plug into a screening tool in various ways using various ratios um, to get kind of a list of the kind of company you're looking for. What's a good book maybe to read about this? Do you have a recommendation on, on reading for? Different measures here? A lot of screening measures um, are based on valuation ratios or um, valuation multiples. So there's a lot of good books out there that talk about those, not necessarily screening, but talk about what the different multiples and ratios mean. So the little book on value investing, um, there's a lot of series, the series of books called The Little Books okay. are very good. And there's a number of them on valuation. And you can, you know, they're really easy to read. They're little, as, as the title would indicate. <laughs> they're physically and quite they're little. Physically quite little and not too long either. Um, so you can just pick up all, all those and say, so what, what is book value I just mentioned? What does right, that mean? Right. What is return on equity? What does that mean? Because you can't really use these multiples or these metrics until you understand what they are, and then you can say, okay, that's the one I want to screen for. All right. Just so we everyone knows, a screen is basically 
a tool on usually on the web and you just enter I'm looking for any company that matches these criteria click the button and then it gives you a list that, yep. it's a way to sort through all the thousands of stocks out there and that's typically how I find um, investments for the service I manage here um, Motley Fool Deep Value I'll enter the criteria I'm looking for which is again value and a deep value sometimes distressed companies it'll spit out 20 or so that match my criteria criteria and then my job is one by one go through each one each one 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 at a time and say okay is any of these worthy of, of our members' capital? And what what kind of program like what programs are these? The we tools? we use Capital IQ, which is rather robust and yeah. probably you know not not right for the individual investor. But there's plenty of free screening tools out there, and the Motley Fool actually has has a screening tool as well on its website. Cool. All right. Before we get to the next question, it's time to talk about what you're getting your dad for Father's Day. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got to think about that. Is right. what you're saying. Well, th- here's the thing. Whatever you're about to say, I have a better answer because Harry's is offering a special limited edition shave set for Father's Day. The set includes a matte black razor handle, a chrome razor stand, moisturizing foam gel, three handcrafted blade cartridges, and a travel cover, all for 40 bucks. It comes in a gift box, and you can even add a custom engraving or a personalized card. Sold. Yeah? Yeah, it sounds good. Awesome! Now, bro, you actually have just been given your sample of Harry's to try it out for us. I have, and as you can tell, if you could look at my face, I haven't used it yet, but I will soon. You're sporting a, a, a what's that? A, a week long beard? You about have there? a week. Okay. I'm about a once a week shaver, but yeah. uh, I look forward to it. Good. Well, we'll have you report back on how it oh, went. Yeah. All right. So. The even better news is that Harry's is offering $5 off your first purchase if you enter the code FOOL at checkout. Economy shipping ends for Father's Day on June 9, so hurry up! And thanks to Harry's for supporting Molly Fool Answers. All right, back to the mailbag. Next question comes from Yervant. When I listen to financial news, I often hear about stocks going up or down in pre-market or after-market trading. What are these activities, and why would I want to do this kind of trading? That's actually a, a great question. Yeah, um, I get it from time to time from members. So the stock market, the regular stock market, let's call it, <laughs> is open from nine a.m. nine thirty a.m. to four p.m. every weekday. Eastern time. Eastern time. Which correct. is always interesting to me when I think of people in Hawaii, like the market they, closes they, at what? What is that? Noon or what? Something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are those are the hours, but you can actually trade before the market opens or after the market closes. And that's the the pre-market or after market trading that he speaks of. The problem with before or after is that those markets are much less liquid. There's a lot of less shares trading hands before the market opens or after the market closes. So the pricing of the stocks are not as efficient. You'll get a very wide spread between the bid price, which is the price a buyer wants to pay, and the ask price, which is the price a seller wants to receive. You can sometimes get a very large gap in those prices. So if you're not careful and you put in a, an order, you could potentially get very bad execution. And by that, I mean you'll get a bad price. You won't be happy with the price you get. So I would say for individual investors, regular type fools, it's really not necessary for you to go into the aftermarkets. The, the, the trading day is plenty long, and there'll be plenty of time. <laughs> Sit on your hands. Um, if you start playing games and thinking you're getting a good deal because you're, you're in the market when most people are out, I, I tend to think that's going to backfire on the individual investor, and you should just stick with the most liquid times of day. Yeah, I feel like the most times I hear about pre-market or aftermarket is when 
people like CNBC who have to talk about the market 12 hours a day need something to talk about. That, well, that's <laughs> so, totally true. Well, what, after earnings is when you'll hear people talk about it most. So, during earnings season, a company reports earnings, but they do it typically after the close or even before the open. And you can get an indication of what investors think about that earnings report by seeing how it's trading pre-market or after-market. Another way it's used, especially on stations like CNBC, is you can see where the futures are trading to give you an indicate where the market will open when it does open at 9.30. And that's mostly an institutional investor thing that they want to know. For individual investors, as we always say, Buy great companies, hold them for the long term. Don't worry about movement in stock prices. Certainly not before the market opens or after they close. <laughs> yeah, we're looking at longer terms than that, yeah. longer holding periods. All right. Next question comes from Henry. Henry writes, I can only invest a couple hundred dollars every paycheck after 401k and savings. I feel like I would never make a lot because eventually, when I have a decent amount of shares invested, the rising stock period is over. Should I keep going as is, or are there other options? Okay, Henry, first, I think what you're doing is great. I love that you're investing. You're in there and you're putting whatever money you can save into the stock market. Love, love that. Um, I would say don't worry about rising stock prices. Good companies, great companies can continue to rise in value for decades, not over the amount of time he's. he's um, accumulating his shares. My only biggest caveat would be to watch the commissions you pay as a percentage of the money you're putting in. If you were if he was at a traditional brokerage firm and he was paying $8 every time he traded and he was only putting in $200 each time, that $8 divided by 200 is whatever that number is, that's too big a percentage. We we try to say try to keep your commissions at 2% or less, hopefully much less. In Henry's particular case, He's trading for zero fees, zero dollars with through, Robinhood. Through yeah, Robin I did Hood. leave that out. Yeah. Um, so as long as he can continue to do that, I don't think he needs to worry about only putting a couple hundred dollars in at a time. If there does come a time where he's with a different brokerage or Robinhood some, somehow starts to charge him, then I would be careful because you're really eating into your rate of return if you're starting to pay five or ten time ten percent every time you make an investment. There feels like there's a lot of. Waiting for the shoe to drop in the media right now, where it's like, well, we've been on such a tear for so long, it's going to end, and we're all going to, you know, it, there's so much. I don't. Maybe there always is fear. Whenever we're never, we, we're, there's just no keeping us happy. Right. We've we've actually been in a weak market for for quite some time now. It just hasn't been a horrible market like we got during the recession. So people don't necessarily feel that that shoe has dropped. But that's why Henry is doing something that's so beautiful, which is he's putting money in consistently over time. He's dollar cost averaging into the market. So even in good or bad times, he'll be adding during good times. He'll be adding during bad times over a lifetime investing. That should translate to him being. Pretty happy. Hey, gold course, star, Henry. I, of course, ran some numbers. And assuming oh, well, wow. numbers. That's, that's kind of overachieving. I was told there'd be no math. <laughs> if he gets paid twice a month and he adjusts his contributions for inflation every year mm -hmm. and earns 8%, after 10 years, he would have over $80,000. Nice. So, by putting in just that small amount regularly after a decade, that's a nice chunk of change. Not bad at Wonderful. all. Next question comes from Luann. What does the term guidance mean? I hear this term being used all the time, and I would just like clarification. I don't blame you. So, guidance <laughs> guidance almost always refers to when the management of a company tells investors what they can expect the company to earn, um, both in earnings and what it can put up in revenue for a given quarter or perhaps a full year. So, that is a company giving you their best judgment of how they're going to do. 
Now, the one caveat here is that companies play games. Hmm. They typically don't want to overestimate because if they come in under, the stock gets whacked. So they kind of want to be conservative. It's called sandbagging. Sometimes they'll be really conservative. So then they can say, oh, our quarter was so good, we beat our mm-hmm. guidance. Mm-hmm. That usually makes the stock go up. Now, I would say for individual investors, you shouldn't worry about whether stocks go up or down at the end of any given quarter. If you're buying great companies and holding them for the long term, it's somewhat irrelevant. And I think guidance is somewhat irrelevant for the regular individual investor, mostly used by analysts whose job it is to kind of make calls about buy, sell, hold in any given quarter or certainly a year. Yeah, this is another one you hear a lot in earnings season, right? Because that's usually when they're saying that they're raising guidance, lowering guidance, and then, yeah. And then you can differentiate that with what's called consensus estimates, which is um, what all the analysts on Wall Street think on average. You'll often hear that a lot, and people confuse company guidance with consensus estimates. But one, you're getting directly from the company, and then your other, you're getting just from talking heads like me, who, who are giving you their opinion. David writes, when a company repurchases shares, what happens to those shares? Okay, so the most common thing that happens to those shares is that they're retired. The company says, bye-bye, you, you no longer exist. So when that happens, there are actually less shares outstanding of a company. So if you own a little piece of that pie, the piece of the pie you own just got bigger. Yeah. You, by definition, now own a little tiny bit more <laughs> of that company. Okay. And so when also when there are less shares outstanding, then the earnings per share also go up. EPS, earnings per share. When earnings per share goes up, theoretically, the stock price should go up as well to reflect the fact that there is more earnings for every little piece of that pie. So a company will often repurchase shares when it thinks its stock is undervalued, because it's actually a good investment for them at that point. Um, The problem is, is that companies often just get it wrong. They repurchase shares when the stock is expensive. They hold off out of the market when the stock is cheap. They typically get it wrong. Um, it's an allocation of capital decision. They have money. They can go into the market and they can buy back shares, or they can use that money for some other growth, growth initiative. So it's a tough decision for a company to say, I'm going to put off this other thing we want to do because I think I'm going to go into the market and buy back some of our stock. Unfortunately, they often get it wrong, and the money probably would have been better used elsewhere. All right. When you think of executives, and one of their main goals is to increase the share price for its shareholders. So they say, well, if we can go out and buy the shares, increase the earnings per share, that's good for shareholders. They could also use that money to reinvest in the business. They could pay a dividend. Um, and you tell me, Ryan, if you agree with this. There's a little bit of controversy about this to a certain degree because executives are paid uh, often based on the performance of the share price. Or so this helps that to a certain degree, whereas paying out cash and dividends doesn't really help them. Which is why some people argue that companies don't pay out dividends as much as they used to. Right. Um, because there is this incentive for executives to prop up the price to a certain degree. I think that's right. There's also different tax implications to dividends right. versus capital gains by making stocks go up. So that that factors into it as well. What's interesting is you'll often see a company um, report a quarterly earnings um, report that isn't is less than stellar, let's just say, not so good. And at the end of that press release they'll say, and we've just authorized a one billion dollar share buyback to try to kind of offset the fact that they just reported a bad quarter to try to keep the stock propped up a bit. 
That's that's kind of shenanigans. It's a little bit of playing games, <laughs> yeah. but you'll you will often see that. So, what should an investor think when a company they own does a big repurchase? Theoretically, it should be good good for that investor as long as the company is not committing that capital at a time where the stock is just way way overvalued. Um, but if the stock is either undervalued or reasonably valued, then that's creating um, you know a bigger piece of pie for each investor. And, and theoretically, it should be good. Good. All right, last question comes to us from Josh. Josh writes, I can't figure out why people don't only go for stocks with high dividend yields. Yeah, it can be tempting to do that. So, for for those that regular need, regularly need income coming in, um, for example, retirees, dividends can be very important. But for the rest of us, I think you should always think in terms of total return. Total return is the amount of stock price appreciation, the amount that a stock price will go up over time, plus the dividend you'll make. That's total return. That's really what we all should be concerned about, is total return. Um, A company that pays a high dividend is often signaling to investors that it has nothing else to do with its capital. Because if it had some great growth opportunities, and they're good capital allocators, they would likely put that money to those growth opportunities. What would what would a high dividend be? Like what percents are we talking? I mean, let's let's say four or five and higher, okay. four or five percent and higher. Okay. Um, so it's signaling um, we don't really have a place to put our capital, so we're going to give it back to shareholders. Which okay, good for me. I like money just as the next guy, but I actually would like it more if the company I owned had growth opportunities, so that stock would rise. Um, over time, um, so the lack of growth will often lead to a lot, just a lackluster stock. It could even lead to a stock that goes down. So while you'll own that high dividend, you'll actually be losing money as the stock price goes down. Um, the other thing, it's a red flag to me when a dividend is too high, because typically what happens if a stock price plunges, then the dividend yield will go up. It's just the way the math works. Because um, the stock price is in the denominator of the dividend yield equation, so if a stock price plummets, dividend yields go up. All of a sudden, you say, "Ooh, this is an eight percent dividend yield." Well, you then need to look behind the curtain and say, "Why did the stock price just plunge? Is this company in danger? And is the danger that they're going to actually cut the dividend in the future, and I won't get that rosy dividend yield, or is it even worse? And this company is in liquidity problems, potentially bankruptcy problems. What's going on behind the scenes?" So high dividend yields are a red flag to me. Right now, by the way, the yield on the S&P 500 is around two percent. So anything significantly above that is we considered pretty high. I agree. Um, now there are several studies that show that when you compare dividend payers to non-dividend payers over the long term, the dividend payers have outperformed. Um, key to that though is that you are reinvesting those dividends. So I think that's really the the underappreciated value of it. If you buy 100 shares of Facebook today, which doesn't pay a dividend, unless they change their policy 10 years from now, you're just going to have 100 shares of Facebook. Whereas if you bought a company that's yielding about 3%, it's growing dividend about 5 or 6% a year, which is historically what happens. Buy 100 shares today, you could have 125, 150 a decade from now. That's really where the power of dividend reinvestment comes from. If instead you're getting that dividend, you're spending it. You're not going to have quite the same return. And most brokers, you can just tell them to automatically reinvest your dividends, so you don't need to remember to do it each quarter when your when your dividend rolls in. You can just have it done automatically. And as Robert said, you know, before you know it, instead of 100 shares, you're going to own 125 shares. Kaching! Yay! So, final, final, last question. 
it's summer, and Ron, rumor has it that you fancy yourself a bit of a connoisseur of grilling, a king of grilling. Perhaps. I was not aware of this. Perhaps, yes. And yes. What can I do? do Well, no, we're just I'm just looking for maybe what's your best piece of grilling advice for this summer here? I tell you what I what I recently said on Motley Fool Money Radio show is two words salt and booze. You need more of both of them than you think you do. Salt is is what you need. It's actually the one ingredient that differentiates the professional chef from the home chef. Home chefs do not use enough of it. And, you know, have a couple drinks while you're grilling. Kind of lighten up. (laughs) So there you have it. Salt, booze, and investing. You got it. All right here on Motley Fool Answers. Thanks, Ron, so much for joining us. My pleasure. A lot of fun. Come back again. Thank you. All right, that's going to do it for today. The show is edited by Rick Engdahl. If you have a question, you can drop us a line at answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Bye.